I think that the hardest thing to accept is killing somebody. And sometimes I think I'm just fighting myself, you know, to escape where I'm at because I'm thinking of these things. Two Hueys collided, and I'm looking right at it. And everybody said, oh my God, what's going on? Whoa! We did not know who it was. So we're saying that, you know, God, who was that? Oh my God, Frank Hernandez went down in my place? They both served in Vietnam. Different areas, different outfits, different years. But they have in common the trauma of having witnessed the worst that war has to offer. And they brought that trauma home with them. Night sweats, fits of rage, the mental demons born of war haunted Mike Masello and Norm Bowens for years. They both agonized. What's wrong? Why can't I cope? Both Mike and Norm were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. But they didn't know that until they were finally diagnosed more than three decades after their return from Vietnam. They met in veteran group counseling at the VA, and over the years have become fast friends, brothers in arms. Mike was in the 9th Infantry, Norm in the 101st Airborne. Mike came home from Nam in 68, Norm two years later. They are both very candid about what they saw, how it changed them, and how they're coping more than a half century after they came back to the world. Had either of you guys heard of the term post-traumatic stress syndrome when you came home from Vietnam? Me? No. Negative. You did not know that? No, sir. And when did you come to the realization that you may be suffering from that? Doctor's appointment, okay, and... uh questions being asked about my experience in Vietnam and the nightmares that I was having, okay? And he immediately labeled me as having PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's the position they gave me when I came to, when I came to, uh, to Heinz VA. When, uh, he, when he said to you, Norm, I think you, you, you have PTSD. What was your reaction? Did you ask, what, what the heck is this? What does this mean? Well, he explained it to me, you know, what it, what it meant before he even, he even told me. He asked me questions, and he asked me, did I have nightmares? I said, yes, sir, I did have, I did have nightmares. He says, uh, to what extent? I said, he says, every night? I said, no, not every night, but every other night. You know, I wake up sweating and thinking that I'm, I'm still back uh, in the mountains. And uh, he says, uh, what you may be suffering from is what we call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, okay? And at that time, I didn't know what it was, but he explained it to me. And uh, he gave me a number to call, okay? And this is how we got, this is how I got to know Dr. Shemis, Dr. Robert Shemis. He headed the PTSD uh, class. And this is where I met my brother, Mike. We ended up having the same doctor. We got the same doctor, Dr. Shemus. And he knows us like he knows the back of his hand. So he's the one that recommended all this stuff to us because he immediately read our problem. When we first came, when we first came to him, right off the bat, he says, you're suffering from what we call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, with the nightmares and everything in it. 
and I didn't know what it was. Okay, but I knew it was it was prevalent. It was happening to me. So every other night you're waking up in your sleep. Yes, sir. You're sweating. Yes, sir. You got bad dreams. You, yes, sir. You got I, demons you know, working on you. Waking up out of breath, you know, and and uh, you know just I didn't even know where I was. And this is well after the war. I came home from Vietnam in 1970, and it was 90. I think it was 96 or 97 when I got in, when when. Uh, Doc Shimmers took over. What a blessing it was because everybody that was in his group saw combat. When we first started the group, it was about maybe 12 of us. And uh, we all had seen action. We had saw, you know, battles and everything in that. And uh, this is where I met my brother. Uh, Mike. Okay, I started Doc Shimmers' uh, class that Monday. You know, when you start a class, when you go to a room and sit down, you just sit at the same desk, you know, when you come back. Everybody started Everybody at the same time. Everybody does that. Right. Everybody sits at the and, same time. Uh, and we all started that group at the same time. Two days later, two or three days later, I came back to sit in my regular seat. And I looked over there and said, somebody was sitting in my seat. Well, you know, I, I don't own any seat here. I mean, that's the seat that I've been sitting in. I don't own any seat. It was my brother that was sitting there. And, uh, you know, and uh, after the group, you know, we started. When Mike came in, Mike was kind of... You know, he was trying to fill everything out because he wasn't really that vocal. You know, we had been there for several days, so we were vocal and we were asking questions and doing this and doing that. But he sat there and he took all this stuff in, okay, and said, you know, what am I getting into? You know, I know what I know what the atmosphere is now, so I'm ready to, to let loose. And that's what he did. Do you remember that, Mike? Letting loose? Oh, yeah. Well, we all had that opportunity. You know, the first thing you do is you introduce yourself where you served— you know, when, all that, and each take a turn. Anytime anybody comes into the group, Dr. Zoko is a psychologist, okay. psychiatrist. psychiatrist. Okay. Shimmis is a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And Shimmis, by the way, had no military experience, no. Yeah. but was an except. he's retired now, but was an exceptionally good listener. Yes, oh, he was. Absolutely. For sure. Positively. For sure. He, you could tell he understood much like yourself, you researched and you find out what actually is true. And I mean, we've had some people in the group that didn't belong there and they would pull them out. All right, you didn't find out, Mike, that you had PTSD until 2006, I think you Correct. told me, all right? That's what, like almost 40 years after the war. Got home in 60 And I'm just, I'm, befuddled by that. I don't know why it takes so long to write. We, we called it shell shock in World War II. It's PTSD now. Battle Maybe. fatigue. Battle fatigue. That. Yeah, battle fatigue. So you have a pronounced case too. You're going through, I guess, something similar to Norm. You're going through the same stuff, night sweats, bad dreams. Right, right. And it was a friend of uh, mine that I served with. He invited me to his house. There were a couple other guys there, Army, Marines, that have been through and have been in the program for PTSD. And they sat down with Ernie and I and explained, you need to get help. I had just signed up to go to Indianapolis for a Mobile Riverine reunion. Now the Navy and the 9th Infantry Division worked together down in the Delta. That's what you were part of, the Mobile Riverine. The Mobile Riverine Force. And I figured, well, I brought all my memorabilia, you know, that I had, I figured, 
you know, share with and maybe run into somebody. And I didn't. But I used that time. And on the way there, one of the guys, Otto, gave me Doc Shimas's number. And I called him directly and set up an appointment. And when I came back, I went to that appointment. I saw him two or three times talking about things and sometimes getting very emotional. And he uh, said, you know, I'd like you to go get into a group. The group only met once a week. At that time, it was Mondays, like 6 to 7.30. That's when I sat in the seat because I was early. I always tried to be early wherever I was going. Oh, they meet in there, the receptionist said, so I went in and I sat down. So the fact that you sat down in the seat that normally was held by Norm didn't cause any conflict on that oh, day, no. did it? Well, I didn't know it belonged to Norm. <laughs> no. And then again... You don't care that it belonged to Norm. No. And I'm not intimidating. He was intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and every time we came... He sat in his new seat. I sat in that seat, and it was never an issue. It was later on that this story comes out that I took his seat. Okay. okay. And you know what? That new seat that I sit in yeah. was right by him. Okay. <laughs> so he's your buddy. Yes, sir. And you guys are fast friends today. Do you oh, counsel each brothers. other? We're brothers. You talk to each other about your experiences? Not only that, our everyday lives, we know everything about each other. That's right. We got married in the same year, mm -hmm. 72. So we've both been married 51 years. Mm -hmm. His is in January, mine's in February. You know, so there's a lot of ties there. I want to take you back to your experience in Nam to get an understanding of what you saw, what you went through, and I know you saw much more than the two events I'm going to raise. Mike, you were with the 9th Infantry, 4 Corps, Mekong Delta, Mobile Riverine, and the date when an event of great significance in your life happened was June 19, 1967. You had three companies, I think, in Atback, the small hamlet that had seen a previous battle. But one of the other companies walked into an ambush. Can you walk me through that day? What happened that day? Well, the, uh, three companies were out on an operation, and Alpha Company walked into an L-shaped ambush. Probably in the first 45 seconds, 90% of the casualties took place. And there were 45 KIA. Well, there were 47, ultimately, but quite a few more injured. What they had set up was you know, the dike in between the rice paddies. They put fresh mud on top of those dikes. So when they opened fire, an Alpha Company went behind the dikes to seek cover, they shot right through the soft mud and was hitting guys who thought they were undercover. And where are you at this point in time? Uh, I'm right now I'm I'm in Dong Tam. I wasn't out there. I was there when they were coming in with the wounded. They shot down helicopters, five I think, that, that night. They were taking out the wounded. With the wounded. And later on in years we find out that it was uh poor intel. They were told that there was a a brigade out there and then they said no. That's why there were three companies out there. 
they said they moved out, so that's why Alpha Company moved freely, only to find out that they didn't move out. It went all through the night. Three guys in my squad went out. They would set up illuminating flares so that they could see where the wounded were at, and when they would die down, these three guys crawled out there with nothing but a knife and a grenade, maybe, and a poncho to bring wounded back. And the moaning and the, it was, it was tough. One of the guys brought back like six or seven guys, kept going out there. Then they were taking them down the river to be evacuated. And that's when one of our lieutenants got hit. He was grabbed and put on a chopper, and the, the pilot said, uh, you know, we, we can't take him. We have too many. Well, you're taking this one, my friend Ernie said, and he put him on that chopper, and that saved his life. He had over 100 stitches in his face. His One side of his face was on the other. He was very bitter after talking to him at one of the reunions because he believed it was friendly fire, because it's so dark, you know, but uh, we don't know. Sometimes the littlest things you do change somebody's life, save their life. You know, once you're gone, there's no history. Were you able to recognize down the road how that day haunted you for the years to come? I don't remember dreams. My wife could, you know, write a book on some of her dreams. She, she remembers everything. Mm -hmm. Me, I don't. But there were times that I would be swinging, hitting the, night, uh, the headboard above her head, swinging the other way, propelling myself off the bed. I was in fights many times. You mean fights in your dreams or fights in reality? In, in my dreams. Okay. I think that the hardest thing to accept is killing somebody. Did you do that? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you know, and sometimes I think I'm just fighting myself. How so? You know, to escape where I'm at because I'm thinking of these things. You know, and being in my position as a squad leader, I mean, I'm there helping train. And I totally realize I, I wasn't stupid. I wasn't, you know, just trying to get away from the responsibility. I took on the responsibility. And I wasn't the nicest guy, you know, because I knew you had to be good at what you're doing because you might be there to protect me. I remember one kid fell asleep on guard duty in training, and I just bopped him with the butt end of the rifle and just, you know, one guy I had to hit, he wouldn't do what he was told to do, and he ran down to the first sergeant's office, and first sergeant comes upstairs and says, uh, in the barracks, he says, what happened? He says, he was running and ran into a wall locker. Oh, okay, and he walked away, you know. <laughs> but through all of that, Every one of us, even those that I didn't treat very nice, became the best of friends. You're, you're trained as a military man to kill the enemy, and so you did that. 
You didn't think about it then, I'm presuming. You're thinking about it later on. Later on. Later on. Later when you got time to think. You, you, don't, you don't know the impact because you do as you were told. And being a squad leader, I knew everybody in my squad who wanted, what was your reason to come home? Why did you want to come home? A girlfriend? Maybe a wife? Maybe a car? Maybe your farm? Everybody had a reason, but not everybody had a reason to come back. One guy wanted to prove he was a better person than his father because his father was very mean. And he wanted to prove he was a better person than his father, a better soldier. And he did. Wound up with three Purple Hearts and, you know, but he was reckless at times. And I remember him asking me, he says, Mike, he says, how do you get by that feeling of knowing when you pull a trigger, somebody's head would split open like a watermelon? And I said, JR, I says, it's better that you have that feeling in the back of his head than that he has it in the back of yours. It's survival. Norm, you had an event in, was it 1970? Yes, sir. You're part of a, well, you were a mortar man, and then you opted to become a door gunner on a Huey, which uh, is a risky proposition because you're dealing with uh, dropping troops in and extracting them and from hot landing zones. So yes, sir. It's a, it's a risky job. Yes, sir. I was in the field, you know, with a, with a lion company, uh, Echo Company. And Echo Company was uh, in charge of small artillery such as uh, 81 millimeter mortars. You know, we would we would supply all the uh, small artillery out in the in the field to face the enemy. You know, we would carry along like two two mortars, two base plates, two tripods, two tubes, and a bunch of uh, 81 millimeter mortars, and we would sit up out there in the middle of nowhere. Okay, and, and they would call a fire mission in, and then we would attack with the uh, with the mortars. Okay, after we did what we had to do, we would find bodies of uh, NVA. Okay, now where we were, not like where Mike was, we we dealt with the hardcore soldiers, the NVA. They were the hardcore soldiers. Those were the ones that wore the uniforms, not the ones in the black pajamas. Okay, the ones in the hardcore uniforms, and they were rough. They were trained. They were trained to, to kill, and that's what they did. I got to Vietnam in July of 1969, July the 7th of 1969. We were out in the field for about every day for like five months. We would come in for like maybe a, a week stand down, and a stand down is you come in and you change your fatigues, take a shower, get some hot chow, get some beer, you know, and everything in that kind of relax a little bit, and you're back out there again. But what a lot of guys were doing, they wanted to get out of the field. So a lot of people were putting in requests for reassignments to go to the aviation company to be a door gunner. It just so happened that uh, the aviation company that was at Camp Evans had lost a lot of people, okay, and they were looking for door gunners. At that point in time, when we heard that, you know, we'd rather take our chance on the Huey than we'd take our chance out there humping you know, in the mud and snakes and everything. So a lot of us put in a request for reassignment to go to be a door gunner. And you did. I did. And I was one of the lucky ones. I got, you know, I got called. 
but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Who well, at the same time we would have a warm bed to sleep in at night, okay, in a hooch, some hot chow every day, but we were losing aircraft a lot. We've been shot down, mid-air collisions and stuff like that, just unfortunate accidents. You know, I saw a lot of it. I saw a lot of it. I can I can tell you about how I'm still able to sit here and talk about it today. How is that? I was getting ready to go on R&R. That's called rest and relaxation. Right. Now, I'm with the uh, aviation company. I was with Bravo Company, 158th Aviation. Call sign was Lancer. The first sergeant said, well, Bowens, we don't have anybody to fill your, fill your spot right now. If you find somebody to fill your spot, it's okay, you can go. The door gunner, one of my door gunners, Hernandez, Frank Hernandez, he was my door gunner for a while, but then he transferred to another ship. And then I got a, a cherry door gunner who didn't really know anything about it because he had just came into the country. A newbie. Right, a newbie. I wanted to go on his R&R. I told, I told her, and I said, Top is not going to let me go unless I, you know, get somebody to fill my spot. When we, when we say Top, we're talking about the first sergeant. He says, for what it's worth, he says, uh, if you want to, you know, I can go to Top and tell him that I can fill in for you. I said, well, who's going to fill in for you? I said, you, I mean, you got a new assignment, too. Who's going to fill in for you? He said, don't let me, let, me, let me worry about that. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, you can go. You know, you're not going to miss out on your R&R, man. I went to Bangkok, Thailand, and I came back. I stayed seven days. I came back from, from Bangkok, Thailand, and I uh, came back to my unit. Frank was on my ship, okay? Mr. Worthington, Mr. Barry, Hernandez, and Weiss. That was my ship. That was my ship. I'm flying Charlie Charlie that day. This is about about three days after I came back from uh, R&R. What does that mean, Charlie Charlie? Command and control. Okay. Charlie Charlie, up in, that's, that's the aircraft that goes around in circles and directing traffic on the ground with a full board colonel in there. Okay. So he's telling everybody what to do and where to go. You know, he's the one that calls in the F-4s for the strikes and everything. He does everything at his discretion. And that's what happened that day. So I'm flying with another crew, and uh, it was hot that day, hot in weather and hot in uh, combat. Yeah. Well, we were flying command and control today. I was flying command and control today. I knew Hernandez had got back, and he was flying on my aircraft with my co with, with, with my co-pilot and, and, and uh, these are your crew guys, crew. right? These, these are, are guys. my guys. Two helicopters collided in midair. Two Hueys collided, and I'm looking right at it. And everybody said, oh, my God, what's going on? Whoa, what was that? Oh, whoa. Um, we didn't know who it was. We did not know who it was. So we're saying that, you know, God, who was that? Who was that? Oh, my God. Everybody was so, and so much in shock. We can only speculate who it was. Only thing we knew is two Hueys collided in midair, and both went down. I, look, I saw it with my eyes. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, no. Mm-mm. No, no, no. That's not the case. They just got too close. They to just each got other? too close. That's what it was. They got too close. And so you're watching this. Are you thinking at that point in time that this is your bird? These are your guys. I'm hoping and praying to God that it wasn't my bird. But it was. It was. It was. It was my bird. Okay, and I did not know that. I did not know that. 
until we got back to the rear. You know, when we made all when we made the the, uh, the extraction, taking the troops out and taking them back to to the, to the rear, which was Camp Evans. When I got back, something was wrong. Something something was wrong. Top, that's the first sergeant, came uh, and sent word, said, uh, uh, Bowen's top want to see you. And uh, I went in to see Top. He said, sit down. I sat down. He told me, he says, uh, you were flying Charlie Charlie. I said, yes, sir, I was. Who took your place? I said, Frank. Frank Hernandez. He said, well, I got some bad news for you. He was one of the choppers I went down. Uh-uh. 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 Frank Hernandez went down in my place? I'm looking at this brother go down. I'm looking at him. I'm looking at him. I'm looking at his chopper whirling to the to the ground and disintegrate. I'm I'm looking at this. And I'm praying and praying and praying that it wasn't him. But then I didn't stick on that for long because I said to him, I came to the conclusion that, you know, it wasn't him. That that that, that wasn't that wasn't Frank, no. That wasn't Frank. Mm-mm. I wasn't no good no more. I was no good. It was Frank Hernandez, Weiss, Mr. Worthington, and Mr. Barry. Okay, those are the four. And everybody that was on board. It was 10 people that lost their lives from that particular chopper. Three grunts on either side of the aircraft and four crewmen, pilot, co-pilot, crew chief, and gunner. 10 people gone. In a flash. I was short. I had less than three months to go in country before I was able, before I would have been going back to the world. And you know who else was short? Hernandez. Frank Hernandez. Yes, sir. We came over there. We came the same day from Echo Company to Bravo Company 158 Aviation to get out of the field because we were in the field together over at Echo Company with the mortars, okay? So you and, go back a ways with Frank Hernandez. Right, right. And we went over there together. We, we, we signed up for it together. We went over there together at the same time, and we started flying. And mind you, mind you, this, this accident happened in the last of May. We was, me and Frank were supposed to go home July the 6th, 1970. We were supposed to go home together. He was from Fresno, California, and I was from Chicago, Illinois. He had just had a daughter born that April, and yet, you know, he wore pictures in his boot and everything he showed it, and, his, and, and the girl he was going to marry, they weren't married, but he was going to marry him when he got back. You know, he kept, he was very close to that. He kept, he kept, he kept him all, he kept his daughter in, in, his, in his shoes and his, uh, around, his, around his ankle, and he was very close. He was something, that was something he was looking forward to going back to the world to see his, his family, the daughter that he had never met. He said, man, we're going back, we're going back the same day. Didn't happen. So more than a half century later, this still eats at you. Is this part of your nightly dream thing? I st- I, in fact, I, I can still see it. I can still see it. That I'll, I'm 70, I'll be 75 in November. 
if the Lord let me live. And I can still see it. I'll see it until I die. Okay? I'll see it until I die. Does talking about it help? It does. It does because, you know, it's, it's, I want to give somebody the image that, I, that I've been suffering with for years. This is why I am what I am, the way I am, okay? Because I've seen my closest friend die, okay, in Vietnam. And we didn't meet each other until we got to Vietnam. We both left out of Travis Air Force Base on the same freedom, on the same jet. I said, we was on the same plane. We didn't even know it. Went in the field together. We did everything together, me and Hernandez. And we put in for a reassignment together at the same time, hoping that it would come through, and it did come through. And we both went over to Bravo Company, 158th Aviation, together at the same time. You were linked in many different ways. Then. Yes, sir. Did you have occasion to reach out to his family never afterwards? Did. I never did. I ne- that, that hurt me. That I never did. I never did. Never reached out to his family at all. And that hurt me. That hurt me. I never did. I never did. Because we never, you know, we were supposed to leave the same day, but he, you know, came to the conclusion that we were going back the same time. And we had, we landed, and I landed at McCord Air Force Base coming back. So he would have landed at McCord, McCord Air Force Base coming back too. That's in Washington. And then from that point, time, from that point, you know, if we had, we had came back together, I took the trip down to Fresno, California, and, and met his family. Okay, but since since I didn't have him, I just took that Freedom Bird and flew on to Chicago. I didn't I didn't even go to California. I just I was just too out of it. I just no. I just 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 take just take me to Chicago. That's all. Is part of your distress maybe based on the notion that it should have been me? Yes, sir. Guilt. Yes, sir. It does. Yes, sir, Miss Miss Mankey. It does. It does because he had something to go back to. He had a daughter that he had never seen, met, and his fiancée, which was a very beautiful girl. He was looking forward to going back. Never did make it. He never did make it. And I asked myself, why? Why? But you know it's not your fault. I know it's not my fault, but why couldn't, you know, why couldn't it have been me? I mean, why couldn't it have been me? He had something to go back to. He had a baby to go back to. They had never seen before, only, only her picture. And he, and way when he put, that, he put that picture down in the shoe. So you came back, and you're carrying that baggage. And like we talked about earlier before we started, you guys got a lot of training to kill before you went over there. But nobody trains you to reenter the world. They don't train you. You just come back. And some people come back from the field of battle 48 hours later they're at a home or they're somewhere where they, you know, the people, their families are happy to see them, but they don't know the world. They don't know what's going on. And a lot of them are loathed because they came back in uniform. So how do you, how, how did you deal with that? Well, I was advised to take my uniform off before flying home. And again, when I came home, I just kept everything inside. I had a job to go back to. Before I went in, I was a gym instructor and a lifeguard at a boys' club. And when I came home, uh, they offered me the athletic program director's job. So I was going to, you know, stay in boys' club work. But then I went back to school, and I couldn't hear. My hearing loss. You you had hearing loss 
because of the artillery that's gone off. You, that, well, that was one of your disabilities. It all made it worse. I was an instructor on a 3.5 rocket launcher during training. And in order to hear and follow the instructions from the tower, I didn't have any protection. And it's like a bazooka uh, with a back blast and the whole bit. And uh, when I went to school, I, I knew I had a hearing problem. My mom forced me to go to the VA, and they gave me a, a 10% rating for my hearing loss and told me, what, how did they put it? They said, unable to comprehend conversational tones, and it could get worse if you're subjected to loud noises. The 10% at the time was $23 a month. A year later, it went up to 25 then it went up to 27 You know, it was nothing... You know, I said, I'll give you 25. Give me my hearing back. Well, that's, that's a physical disability. But undiagnosed at this point in time is what's going on in your noggin, right? Right. And you I, don't know. And, it, and there was a severe price. And if you were, you've talked candidly about it to me before we talked today. You had trouble at home because you got pretty violent. You, right. You know, night sweats and everything else that goes on. So it really hung with you. And changed your personality? Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. Oh, sure. My mom noticed it right away. My mom, my sisters. And when I start working at the post office, this is in the 80s, my coworkers knew something was wrong before me. They shied away from me. I was a union steward, and even the supervisor was intimidated. When was it that you realized the that, that Mike Masello realized, I got a problem here and I got to deal with this. Did that come at some recognizable point in time? Well, I was having trouble because I was adopted. We talked about that earlier. And I'm thinking, well, I'm searching, who am I? Why isn't anybody telling me what's going on? And I was blaming my uh, anger. I was blaming it all on that, not looking anywhere else. My wife suggested that I, you know, investigate to find out more for my health. Is there any history of heart trouble or, you know, anything in your family? We we should know, you know, is there something in our future that we're going to have to deal with? So I'd start doing investigating into that. My younger sister at one time told my wife, divorce him. He's driving you crazy. But she stuck with me. I, it was rough on my son. You know, I apologized to both of them time and time again. Uh, every time something goes, I said, Joe, is this because of me? I don't want this to be because of me, you know, and we could deal with his issues growing up. Do they understand that now? Oh, they do. Oh, oh for sure. But at the time, it was really tough, yeah, really tough. You were hard to live with. Oh, I mean— to a point to where my son had a gun, uh, gun, a knife at my my stomach. He was going to stab me, you know. And I just stood there and said, okay, go ahead. You know, it's like. Fatalistic? Oh, it was, you know, real. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we got through all of that. But again, everything was like 2006, being told I need help. So I'm in a group. And this, I wasn't even in the system for PTSD, and I'm already getting treatment. Haven't even been evaluated yet other than Doc Shimas talking to me, and he knew 
So now they send me to get a primary doctor and all this stuff. And I see this one doctor, and they're asking me questions, and uh, uh, I'm getting real emotional. They're asking me about stressors, things that, you know, happened that are upsetting. And they're just sitting there calmly typing, and it's like they could care less, and you're falling apart. You, was, you wanted a human reaction to what you were telling that person. I, I, I needed a reaction. This shouldn't be so... Clinical. You know, you, you got to understand what I'm telling you. And if you don't, then there's nothing wrong. Uh, and luckily, Doc Shimmis was emotional at times. Uh, I had another, when I had one-on-one, -on -one, uh, this uh, young lady, she was fantastic. And, of course, Doc Soko, he's remarkable in his work. And they care, and, and you can sense that. If they don't care, you sense that too. I got into the to the group, and the groups are fantastic, very helpful. Okay, because you can let it all out, and everybody there understands. But you have to trust the people in your group that they understand and are willing to listen. And again, that's why I sat there for the first few weeks, other than introduce myself. Yes, I were. I just sat there and just listened, and sometimes a guy will come in, he'll take up almost the whole session crying and explaining and venting and whatever, you know, and then another time somebody else would be, something would be bothered him because now it's another date in history. Everybody has a sensitive date from their service, a period that it's something unique for you, when it comes to that time, it's you reflect even greater, and your your nightmares or dreams or whatever you want to call them are stronger at that time because it's an anniversary of something that was traumatic for you. Would it be too simplistic for me to say that as a result of the group sessions that both of you have been in, that today you are better now than you were? 15, 16 years ago. 100% correct, without a doubt. Without a doubt, without the group. But you both still are getting counseling? You're, you're still, like you went to the doc today, right? We look forward to going to group. We go to the vet center. They even We had a new facilitator. We were kind of cautious. He was Air Force. You know, they, they don't know much. But it was our Air Force, so we felt somewhat comfortable. <laughs> he turned out to be unreal. Every day he was learning yeah. from us, every day. And we've lost a few. A few of the guys have passed away. And he was a basket case. A basket. I mean, he was in tears like you wouldn't believe, so emotional. And sometimes when we would talk about things, he would get and. We, we appreciated that. Do you think, fellas, about all of your fellow vets who went through similar things in another part of the world and never were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, went down a wrong path, didn't take care of themselves, maybe abused drugs, maybe took their own lives? There's a lot of those people out there, right? So in a way, 
you're very fortunate in that you were able to recognize that you had an issue and you dealt with it. Or was guided in that direction. Yeah, you had someone, you had the good fortune of having someone come along and say, you need help. Absolutely. And we're prepared to give it to you. One of the guys I grew up with was in the 25th Army, and he was shot, got a Bronze Star, Air Medal, absolutely nothing from the VA. I just made him, he called me Tuesday, he finally dug out his DD-214, mm-hmm. and I'm taking him down to get him into the system. So you are an ambassador, basically. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of our friends was in Korea in 67, 68, the same time I was in Vietnam, and prostate cancer. I said, you need to go and file a claim because they sprayed Agent Orange along the DMZ, and that's where he was at. I dug up paperwork, articles. I I created a file for him and got him into the DAV, and last December he was awarded 100%. There's no stronger force than a veteran going through navigating the system for another veteran. Absolutely right. Yes, sir. Because when you're alone, you're lost. Too much red tape, and you give up. That's what happens. And you guys didn't. Or you had people there that told you, don't give up. Right. 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 You guys went on Honor Flight Chicago, mission 109, last month. And Norm, you had never been to D.C. before. At all. And I don't want to pretend that a flight with other veterans, as wonderful as it is, will solve all the problems that you have experienced in years past. But one fellow that I did talk to who was in combat in Vietnam said, you know, it really helped. Did it help you guys? Yes, Lord, yeah. Yes, it did. Oh, God, yes. Oh, God, yeah, I could think about it, and, and uh, my, my, my eyes would water up. I had never, ever seen anything like that before in my entire life. I didn't know what to expect. They picked us up in wheelchairs, okay, regardless if we can walk or not. Well, in this case, you know, a wheelchair was necessary for me. Once we got in a wheelchair, oh, my God, the camaraderie that I seen about all the other brothers that was in the wheelchair waiting to move forward, I haven't seen that since the day I left now. I came back July seventh, nineteen seventy, and I didn't. Act, we we were told so. Don't don't expect a, a reception because you're not going to get one. Well, that didn't bother me. Okay, I was just glad to be back to the world. I'm glad to be back home. What I saw at Midway Airport. Oh my God! We got up on the main floor of the terminal, and there were people up there with American flags, the policemen, the the the. Uh, all the people that worked for the airport, all the law enforcement was standing at attention for us. And at the same time, you know, they were throwing salutes at us and I was throwing them back. I was throwing them back and crying at the same time. I've never seen anything like that before. That hit me, okay? It hit me to see everybody standing at attention to honor us for what we did and now. But to finally get our accolades, and then I wasn't. We, I'm, sh- I'm sure, I'm sure my brother, 
and myself, we were not looking for anything. We were not, we're not, we're not, we're not looking for any, any accolades. We were not going to do what we had to do. Okay, and that's what we've done. But to get back and seeing the reception that we got, but that's just, that's not even half of it. What, what I really broke down, I broke down. When we got to, to Dulles, there were six bus, six or seven busloads of us. And we all sit down on the bus, along with my caregiver, which is a very beautiful lady. The bus started moving. Well, I was sitting next to the window. And looking out the window, we were like, we were like the fifth bus out of six. And as we were approaching the interstate, the traffic was shut down. The police cars was over to the side. And as we were exiting onto the freeway, onto the interstate, there was law enforcement, state trooping, other law enforcement officials. <laughs> I couldn't take that. That was so nice. I had never seen anybody give us that type of perception for what we went through now. I never seen that before. That warmed my heart. It warmed my heart to see that. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I thank Honor Flight and everybody else who was involved in that and making us, you know, making it possible for us to go to give our last respects to our fallen comrades, which gave me some closure. I needed that. I needed that closure. I did. Oh, I seen a lot of my guys go down. I had never been to Washington, D.C. in my life. Never. Until then. And then when we got there, she took me to the wall. It was hard. It was so hard for me. I looked up every name. And my brother right here, this is why I love him so much. <laughs> my brother, I had gave him the names you know, about a week or so before we got ready to go on the trip. And I gave him the lane, the names and the, and the rank. He put on my phone, not just the names, but the pictures of these brothers that I lost. Mr. Worthington, Frank Hernandez, every last one, it was about, it was about 12 names and pictures of them. He did it. My big brother did it for me. And you know what? I'm I'm 70. I'll be 75 years old in November the 14th. That was the most gratifying time of my life. You know, to see my fallen brothers, Frank Hernandez, Mr. Worthington, Weiss. I saw them all, and I still got them on my phone, and they'll forever be on my phone. The picture and everything. That was a blessing for me. And then, Mr. Michael, when we got back to Chicago, we had more people. My wife and our friend was there. His family, his wife, his son and daughters was there. I saw a lot of other people that I knew. You know, they were waving, waving American flags, and I was saluting, throwing kisses, and slinging snot at the same time. You were crying, weren't yes, you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Couldn't help it. That you, that you can't hold back. Didn't, don't even try to hold back because it's not going to work. It helps. Yes, sir, it helps. You know, and, 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 and I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking for Mike Marcello. 
you know, we're not owed any accolades, okay? We did what we had to do. We were called on to go over there and serve our nation, and that's what we did. We don't want any accolades. We don't want any reward. We don't. This is the greatest nation in the world. Mike, when you were at the wall, did you find names? Did you do etchings? Mm-hmm. And how emotional was it for you? It wasn't as with Norm because I'd been there before. Yes. But I, too, have the pictures. And it's like you can feel, you can touch them. You know, it's just not the name on the wall. In group, I had guys looking up people that they had lost from their units. It's a closer connect when you're at the wall. You never forget those people. In 2010, a bunch of us went to Black Duck, Minnesota. The brothers of one of the guys we lost, Clarence Lossing, he was killed by a sniper on July 11th in 67, and his family had a bronze statue soldier to place on his gravesite. It seemed like everybody was out there, everybody. And we still keep in touch with the family. You, you keep that bond. And with Clarence, I've always wondered, and I, I talked about this with his brothers, he's gone. He got married in December of 66, before going over, July 11th, he's gone. Here we are, remembering him, dealing with PTSD, fighting the demons. Is it better for us or worse for us? Who had the better deal here? I don't know the answer to that. There is no answer. There is no answer. It's a scary, scary thing. But I think I wear this hat not for me. I don't want you to forget them. I don't want anybody to forget them. They paid the ultimate price. You could say what you want, believe what you want, do what you want because of them. I was a bystander. I'm here, but I was, you know, I did what I was asked to do. So did the cook. So did the truck driver. I respect everybody in the service. You did your part. You don't have to be a hero to gain respect in the military. I know that you say you don't want accolades, but I think you do want recognition, and that's what you're talking about. Right. That we recognize that people paid the ultimate price and that others sacrificed, like you guys, in many other ways, what's going on upstairs. That's right. And you have to deal with that over the years. Have you been to Heinz? I have. You see the sign on some of the walls? Through these doors, you see the price of freedom. Missing legs, missing arms. And every time I go in there, there's somebody in worse condition than me. I'm grateful, I'm thankful, I'm blessed. And like Norm says, we were spared. Is there a reason? Maybe the reason is to be here today. We don't know the reason, but as long as we're around, nobody's going to forget those guys. Nobody. I appreciate your time and sharing your stories, and I I wish you only the best. And I'm glad that you know that people do care. We saw that with the honor flight. 
These were strangers that didn't know us, took time of their day. They came to the airport and spent hours waiting for us. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What broke me up? Mail call on the plane. The letter from my son just tore me apart. I was, I, I, I was so. You were sobbing, up. right? Oh, and, and this is the same son. I only have one child, right? Right, and this is the same one that I pushed, not physically, but verbally, enough to cause him to mentally, draw a knife on you, right? You know, yeah, uh, and wasn't the nicest person to, and for him to turn out as he has. He's a great father, a great father to my granddaughters. Did you give him a hug after the letter? Oh, yeah. Well, he was there at the airport with yeah. my yeah. wife yeah. that I didn't expect, yeah. my yeah. daughter-in-law, one of my granddaughters. It was an unbelievable experience. It was. I mean, it was just... But twice he mentioned his birthday. Norm, he's not sending you anything. Twice you mentioned your birthday. <laughs> Don't expect anything. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I love it. Not November. November fourteenth. November fourteenth. Yeah. November fourteenth. It's on my calendar. <laughs> Thanks, fellas. I appreciate your time oh, and your words of wisdom. Great. It's great help. It was my pleasure, and I'm sure I'm speaking for my brother, too. It was our pleasure to do that. Our deep thanks to Mike and Norm for sharing some very personal pain. One of the reasons they sat down to tell their stories is so that from them, others might learn that we all might better understand the price paid by those who've walked in harm's way, and that we never forget. We would invite you to share this podcast. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.